True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The pass winds like a snake through the mountains of the Western Cape. It's breathtakingly beautiful, but also treacherous. If a driver isn't paying attention or the roads are wet, it's easy to go over the side and send your vehicle careening hundreds of metres to the rocks below. This is what appears to have happened to the young couple. They must have been distracted and lost control. Their vehicle is smashed in the valley below and there's little hope for survivors when rescuers descend down. And then they spot the couple, and they immediately know that this was no car accident. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 43, The Baines Kluwerf Murders. to today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Catherine Locke, Calvin Copling, and Tanya Adams for their support on Patreon, as well as Anna-Claire Travers for her donation through PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really makes a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. I'd also like to thank Natasha Salkiner for her donation of four books, one of which, Headline Murders by Chris Carsten, is where I discovered the case I'm going to be covering today. The case jumped out at me because it's quite different from the kinds of cases I've covered before. Rather than being a planned murder, this was a case of two young people finding themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And when the eyes of five career criminals fell upon them, a horrifying journey began, which would end with them and their car at the bottom of a mountain pass. Let's get into episode 43, The Baines Kluwerf Murders. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Maritza van der Maver came from a close-knit family in Westbank, Malmesbury. Her parents, Elizabeth and Clifford van der Maver, had raised their three children in a comfortable, albeit simple, home with good values and through hard work. In 1997, Maritza was just four months away from turning 22 and still lived at home with her parents, her 16-year-old brother Clinton, and her 11-year-old brother, Eckhard. 
Maritza's dream throughout her life had been to model, and she'd taken part in many beauty pageants throughout her school years. She was indeed a striking young girl. But her dreams of modelling had been set aside and replaced with the reality of needing to earn a living. She worked as an admin clerk at Newlaid Chicken Farm in Wellington. What started as a friendship with a young man she'd known for most of her life had by this time progressed into a romance, and she and 19-year-old Sean Latachan were officially dating. The Fundamavas knew the Latachan family well and had no qualms about their daughter dating the upstanding young man. Despite the small age gap, Maritza and Sean got along well, Sean seemed to be mature for his age, and this likely made the age gap less significant to the pair. Sean Latachan had also lived in West Bank for most of his life, and his family reflected the same stability and hard work ethic that Maritza's family did. His father Stephen owned his own building company, and Sean had started working for him after he matriculated. The rest of the young man's family was comprised of two older sisters that had already left home, and his younger sister, Lauren, who he doted on, and drove to school every morning. Sean had saved up and just purchased his first car, a Ford Laser Sport. He was immensely proud of the vehicle, and had recently kitted it out with an impressive sound system. Probably far too large for the tiny vehicle, but Sean was over the moon. And he and Maritza would spend most of their time together in the car, the music reverberating against the windows while they chatted, laughed and held hands. It had become their private space, a place where the young couple could be alone, away from their parents and younger siblings. Sean's mother describes the young man as a very precise person. To him, everything was black and white. You were either doing the right thing or you were doing the wrong thing. And Sean inevitably stuck to the straight and narrow. His parents were proud of the young man, who, in contrast to bubbly Maritza, was quiet, but spoke up when he needed to. He'd never really given his parents a day's worry, and although he socialised and enjoyed his time out with his friends and Maritza as much as any young man, he was always home by 10pm at the latest, especially during the week, and he never stayed out without notifying his parents. On Tuesday the 23rd of April 1997, Maritza phoned her mom from work and asked her to make her favourite chicken curry for dinner. Elizabeth agreed and started making the food preparations. She recalls Maritza being in a hurry when she got home from work. Elizabeth herself was in a hurry to get out the door as she had a church function to get to and recalls last seeing her daughter as she dashed out the door. Shortly afterwards, Sean picked Maritza up and they drove around a bit before eventually settling in to listen to music in a street next to Malmesbury Post Office. It was a place where young people of Malmesbury often gathered in the evenings to chat and socialise. Just past 9pm, Sean and Maritza realised that they needed to get home, 
but both felt a bit hungry, so they decided to stop in at a fish and chip shop on the main road of Malmesbury that they knew stayed open quite late. At 20 to 10, Sean eased his Ford laser into a parking spot opposite the fish shop. Across the road, directly outside the shop, was a cream-coloured Ford Cortina. It had black bumpers, silver alloy wheels and dark tinted windows. Two men stood outside the vehicle and looked up when Sean pulled into the parking space. A passerby witnessed the moment, saying that the two men seemed annoyed and spoke among themselves for a moment and then walked across the road to Sean's vehicle. The Ford Cortina had contained five men that night. All were friends and lived in areas surrounding Malmesbury. Only one of the men, 23-year-old Donovan Klicher, was from Eersterufier in Cape Town, and he was not here with his friends by chance. Donovan had left Eersterufier the year before to live with a friend, to escape police that were hunting him. The young man had been involved in a robbery in Mowbray, as well as a fuel theft, in the prior December. The irony of that night, though, was that there was a policeman sitting in the car with him. Andrew April had been suspended from his duties, though, and it certainly wasn't the first time he had been friendly with criminals. Ricardo Foti was also in the car that night. He had been with Donovan when he'd committed the fuel theft, and despite the fact that he had a wife and young baby just streets away, he chose instead to spend his time plotting their next crime. The other two members of the group were Percy Whittles and Reuben Hector. Reuben was Andrew April's brother-in-law. The car the men sat in belonged to Percy Whittles, and it was no accident that they were parked outside one of Malmesbury's busiest establishments that night. It was to be their first hit of the night. The men planned to walk into the shop, armed with Andrew's service pistol and a shotgun belonging to Donovan, and clear the tills of money while holding the owner at gunpoint. After that, they would move on to an equally busy coffee shop in Worcester, that also stayed open late. Two of the men had climbed out of the vehicle and were surveying the street, picking their moments to pounce on the shop when Sean's Ford Laser had pulled into the parking space across the road. The fish shop was the only one still open on the street, so the men knew that the couple had to be heading in there. Donovan and Ricardo strode over to the Ford Laser while the other three stayed in the car. It would later emerge that the group had, on the spur of the moment, decided to change their plans. They decided to hijack Sean and Maritza and leave them on the side of the road outside of Malmesbury. Then they would use their vehicle in their next robbery to throw police off their trail. Donovan approached the vehicle and, without a word, yanked open the door, got in and overpowered Sean 
while Ricardo kept Maritza from getting out of the car. Donovan instructed Sean to drive, and Ricardo waved to the other car to follow them. They drove out of Malmesbury, looking for a deserted area, but eventually just pulled over on the side of the road. Sean begged the men to let them go, but somewhere along the line, they seemed to have changed their minds. The young couple's hands were bound with adhesive tape behind their backs, and they were forced into the boot of Sean's treasured Ford Laser. The terrified couple could not know that their nightmare was only beginning. The men drove the two vehicles along winding mountain roads through the Boerland, seemingly trying to figure out what they were going to do next. Sean and Maritza remained inside the boot of the vehicle all that time, their hands secured, being jostled back and forth every time the car took a bend, wondering what lay ahead. I can only think that when the car eventually slowed and came to a stop, they must have felt an enormous mixture of relief and also inexplicable fear. The boot was opened, and the couple was instructed to get out. Percy then pulled out a gun and pointed it at Sean. Terrified, the young man started to run. The group laughed at him, chased him down, and kicked his feet out from under him, dragging him back to their vehicles. The group started to discuss what they would do with the pair. Andrew April, the suspended policeman, didn't think it was a good idea to kill them. He likely knew very well that would result in a huge manhunt for their killers. Instead, he said, they should just be left exactly where they were, so that the group could continue on with their plans. Donovan Kricher was not happy with the suggestion. He told Andrew in no uncertain terms that the couple had seen his face and they were not going to live to tell the tale. If Andrew didn't go along with what he wanted, he would put a bullet in his head. Keep in mind that Sean and Maritza were standing on the roadside with the group, listening to them plan their demise. On hearing Donovan's threat, Ricardo, clearly in a show of bravado and siding with his partner in crime, began to beat Sean in the face and chest. They then forced the pair into the boots of Percy's car and drove off again. They stopped at a picnic spot near Ceres, where they continued to beat Sean mercilessly, smashing his head into a tree when they tired of using their fists. Ricardo then stood behind Sean and pulled the young man's own hands up so that the adhesive tape wrapped around his hands pulled tightly enough around his neck and attempted to strangle him. When he failed at this, or it took longer than he thought it would, he put a plastic bag over Sean's head and tightly wound adhesive tape around his face and neck, essentially blocking off all his air. Andrew walked over to Maritza, who had just witnessed the horrific thing that they had done to Sean, and kicked her in the stomach so that she fell to the ground. When she was down, he put a bag over her head and wrapped tape over her face and neck as well.
it would later emerge that some of the group had wanted to shoot the couple, but Andrew April had warned them not to, as the echo of shots could be heard by people nearby. As Maritza and Sean struggled for air, the group loaded the couple back into the boots of Sean's car, stripped them of all their jewellery, stripped the sound system that Sean had worked so hard to earn from his car, and stole his leather jacket. They then headed for their final destination. Just a few kilometres up Bainscloof Pass, the cars pulled over once again. All five men helped to push Sean's car over the side of the pass, with the couple still in the boot. The men didn't stay to watch their destructive act unfold, and all piled back into Percy's Cortina and headed back to Ceres. If they had stayed to watch, they would have seen the Ford laser bounce off the rock face below several times, and on the way down, they would have seen the boot fly open, and the bodies of their two victims flung out, joining the car in its freefall. While the eventual cause of death for Maritza and Sean was deemed to be suffocation, we will never know if they were still conscious when they felt the car that they were trapped in plummet down several hundred metres, eventually coming to rest with their broken bodies around it in the valley below. When Maritza's mother returned from church that night, she'd found it strange that her daughter was not home yet. Her husband had assured her that she was probably just start having fun and would return soon. Elizabeth van der Merwe, though, knew that her daughter had work the next day, and being as conscientious as she was, would not stay out late. The mother had a deep sense of foreboding and couldn't sleep. At midnight, she decided to phone one of Maritza's friends that lived in the house behind them. She apologised for waking the girl and asked if she'd seen Maritza. The girl said that she had seen her getting into the car with Sean earlier that evening, but she knew nothing more of her whereabouts. Elizabeth sat in the lounge, briefly nodding off from exhaustion, but unable to rest. At Sean's house, his younger sister Lauren awoke and started getting ready for school. Her mother was getting ready for work, and by the time the girl had had breakfast and was ready to go, she told her to wake Sean up, as he hadn't come out of his room yet. Lauren knocked gently on the door, and then opened it a crack, to see that her brother was not there, and his bed had not been slept in. Then the phone rang in the Latakhan house. It was Maritza's mother, asking if they knew about the girl's whereabouts, or if she could speak to Sean. All at once, the two families realised that neither of them knew where their children were, and something was very, very wrong. The two families would spend the rest of the day searching for Sean and Maritza. Eventually, after they had checked everywhere they could think of, they made the decisions to involve the police. These were not young people that were known to party into the night or disappear without letting anyone know where they were going. Maritza hardly missed a day of work, 
and Sean knew that his father needed him at the business. As Tuesday turned into Wednesday, the families braced themselves for the worst. Maritza's uncle, Denzel Janssen, was at the time a police officer in Malmesbury, and Elizabeth contacted him to let him know that his niece was missing. Denzel asked the detectives he worked with if they could be on the lookout for Sean's car while they worked that day. No one saw anything. On Thursday afternoon, a man who'd been driving on Baines Clough Pass reported having seen a car at the bottom of a steep ridge. At 4pm, police and rescue workers descended hundreds of metres down a steep rock face to reach the wrecked vehicle. Finding no occupants inside the vehicle, they started to carefully search the surrounding area and stumbled upon a site that would change this from an accident investigation to a double murder. Sean and Maritza were lying relatively close to one another, their heads still covered in the terrible torture devices their murderers had created, and their hands still firmly secured behind their backs. Some of Maritza's clothes had been torn from her body, and she had a bruise on her forehead. Sean had clearly been severely beaten, his face distorted and swollen. At the moment of discovery, police were not yet aware of the victim's identities, as they were still working to clear the scene. But on Thursday evening, Maritza's uncle Denzel, quite by chance, visited a neighbouring police station and heard officers talking about a white vehicle that had been found in a ravine at Baines Clough, and there were two bodies nearby. Denzel immediately went to the scene and arrived as the bodies were being brought up to the road. He didn't know Sean, and the officer at the scene asked him if he could identify the female party. Because he couldn't see her face, he asked the officer if he could look at her hands. Maritza had a habit of chewing her nails down to the quick, and as her uncle looked at her hands, he knew without a doubt that this was his niece. When the man speaks about this moment in the television program Opsia Suspur that also covered this case, he breaks down into tears. Twenty-three years later, the devastation of seeing his young niece like that still shatters this broad-shouldered ex-policeman. After the five men had carried out their horrendous act, they decided to lay low and return to their various homes across the Boerland. That Friday, the five read that the wreckage of the vehicle and the bodies of the couple had been found. On the Sunday after the murders, Sean Latigan and Maritza van der Merwe were laid to rest side by side in Malmesbury Cemetery. The joint funeral was a massive event, with family members and mourners travelling from as far afield as Namibia to bid the young pair farewell. The event was so enormous that newspapers across the Boerland covered it, and on the Monday morning their killers read all about the funeral and looked at the photographs of inconsolable family members. 
A 25,000 rand reward was offered for information leading to the arrest of the couple's killers. Police had no doubt that there had to have been more than one person involved. Detective Inspector Ruli Fanikak of Worcester Police Station was appointed along with a team of detectives to track down the killers. Of course, he would have no idea at the time that all he had to do was look among his own colleagues in the police station one town over for at least one of the murderers. What he also could not have known at that time was that by finding Sean and Maritza's killers, he would also solve several other crimes on the Boerland, as the web of the murderer's crimes spanned out like a spider web. The investigation would be muddied by false rumours that the murders had been as a result of a love triangle. Former partners of both Sean and Maritza were looked at, but of course that led nowhere, because this act did not have a motive that was that clear. The killers were still following the progress of the investigation in the newspapers. When the reward was announced, there was no doubt stirrings between the group as to whether any of them would snitch. All the men seemed to realise, though, that what they had made themselves guilty of was far worse than any gains that 25,000 rand could bring. The men must have been relieved when they realised that police were still focusing on the Malmesbury area and hadn't spread their investigation beyond that yet. But then police found a witness. The woman that had been walking past the fish shop at the very moment that both the laser and the cortina were parked there. She could also describe the two men that had approached the vehicle as she passed. The woman's description of the cortina was printed in the newspapers, and the five sprang into action to cover their tracks. They found a man who spray-painted cars with no questions asked, and asked him to re-spray the vehicle black. They swapped out the number plates too. And then, seemingly feeling like they were in the free and clear, they started planning the next robbery. They were even brave enough to pick a target in Malmesbury again. A popular bar in the area would make a good target, they thought. They planned to hit it on a Saturday night, around closing time, when the tolls would be full of money, and any remaining patrons too drunk to provide any resistance. Andrew April had picked the target, as he was a customer of the bar. He figured he'd spent a lot of money there over the years, and now it was time to get it back. The five men made their way out to Malmesbury on a Saturday night after their murders. Percy Whittle wore Sean's leather jacket. The plan was that Andrew and his brother-in-law Reuben would go into the bar and settle themselves in, drinking and playing snooker. Later in the night, the other three joined them, also pretending to be ordinary patrons. Then, when the pub had sufficiently cleared out, they put their plan into action. The men called the manager of the pub, a man called Vihan Lubba, and asked him to help them get the white ball out of the pocket. 
as he bent over to retrieve the ball. Donovan held a gun to the man's head. Vian's first reaction was to grab the gun, and he started to struggle with Donovan. The others overpowered him and tied his hands behind his back. Ricardo held a pocket knife to Vian's throat while the others emptied the tills. When they were done, Ricardo looked over at Donovan, who drew a finger across his throat, giving the signal for Ricardo to kill Vian. Ricardo did not hesitate and stabbed Vian in the throat nine times. Believing that they had shut down any possibility of Vian identifying them as a huge pool of blood surrounded the man, the five left with 26,000 rand in cash, Vian's gun, his car keys and his cell phone. While they had gathered their loot, the men had been quite chatty. They had discussed other murders and mentioned Baines Clueff. That would have been just fine. But what they didn't know was that Vian was still alive and he was carefully listening to every word. Although alive, Vian was seriously injured and had lost a lot of blood. He was paralyzed for several weeks and sedated so that his body could recover. It seems, though, that Andrew April and his brother-in-law Reuben had not been terribly careful about covering their tracks, and someone in their hometown of Ceres picked up that something was not quite right with the pair, and tipped police off that they should search Reuben's car. When they did, they found several items that heightened their suspicions, including the leather jacket which Percy had left behind there after the latest robbery. Reuben initially refused to say anything, but after some interrogation, he eventually revealed the names of two people. One of them, Ceres police recognised immediately. It was Andrew April, their own suspended colleague. The other name that Reuben had given them was Percy Whittles, who was nowhere to be found, and neither was his vehicle, which police now knew had been re-sprayed. It also emerged that Percy Whittles was living under an assumed identity. His real name was Peter Heinrich. I find it interesting that neither Reuben nor Andrew gave the names of Donovan and Ricardo to the police. It seems pretty clear to me that Donovan and Ricardo were the most deadly of the bunch, and maybe the others decided that it was in their best interests to rather face the law than the wrath of Donovan and Ricardo. One would think that with some of their partners in crime having been arrested, the rest of the group would lay low or flee the area. But no. Instead, Percy Whittles joined Ricardo and Donovan in Worcester, and they started planning their next robbery. They decided to hit a local coffee shop in Vista, and this time didn't bother to come up with any elaborate plans. The three, along with another new accomplice, walked into the coffee shop, and Donovan held the owner and cashier at gunpoint. He ordered them to empty the till, which contained only 900 rand, 
and they fled the scene. Donovan went to a friend's house and hid his shotgun and 31 bullets in a couch. The group then decided that Vista was soon going to be crawling with cops, so they all decided to return to Ceres with Percy, probably thinking that the heat there had died down. Someone, though, had decided that it was time the rest of the group was caught, and a tip was given to police that the man they sought, Percy Whittles, was on his way from Vista to Ceres, and he wasn't alone. Police set up a roadblock and arrested Percy Whittles, Ricardo Foti and Donovan Klicher as they travelled through Rawsonville. With all five suspects in custody, the pieces fell into place and the men were charged with the murder of Sean Latachan and Maritza van der Merwe. Percy Whittles, though, had no plans to face the music and two weeks after his arrest, he and four other men, also all armed robbers, escaped from Varum Bockefeld prison in Ceres. He would be on the run for three weeks before he was arrested in Wolseley. While Percy was on the run, Ricardo Foti was singing like a bird in Vista Circuit Court and decided to turn state's witness. He had absolutely no doubt that he was going to be taken down for the robbery he'd committed in Mowbray with Donovan, the attempted murder and robbery at the pub, and the murders at Bainscliffe. He seemed to hope that by laying his cards on the table, he would get some slack cuts on his sentence. Maritza and Sean's families heard the horrifying tale from the mouth of Ricardo Foti as he testified as state witness in the trial. At one point, the prosecutor asked if the victims could hear the men discussing their murders, and Ricardo nodded without hesitation. Sean's mother believes to this day that her son would have called out for her in his last moments. It emerged in court that at the point when Sean realised that there was no way out, he begged the men to let Maritza go, and kill him instead. Maritza had spoken up in a small voice, lifting her chin in defiance. She told the men that if they killed Sean, they should kill her too, because she didn't want to live without him. The judge presiding over the trial of the five men said that the crime had been, quote, the extreme of loathsomeness, barbarity and inhumanity, End quote. He said that, quote, The two young people must have suffered the greatest fear and terror during their nightmare journey of more than 100 kilometers, and even in death, the murderers showed no respect for their harmless and innocent victims. End quote. The judge praised the police for their excellent work, saying that in his 13 years as a judge, He'd never presided over such a well-prepared case. Ricardo Foti was given 40 years in prison for the murders of Sean and Maritza, and the other four were given life sentences. They were also all found guilty of their other crimes, with close to 10 cases being closed in one fell swoop. Despite the lengthy sentences, 
all the cases that had been closed and the many criminals that were arrested as a result of this case. That gave little solace to Maritza and Sean's parents. Sean's mother was hospitalised for treatment for depression after his death, and everyone that knew and loved the couple struggled to move on from their deaths. In February 2019, 22 years after the murders, Janine Adonis and her two sisters met with her brother's five murderers. The meeting was arranged by the Department of Corrections as part of the restorative justice process. Prior to the event, Janine made a post on Facebook inviting any community members or friends of the couple who'd like to attend to join them and get answers to any outstanding questions they may have. The process is intended to show offenders how their crimes have impacted people in the long term, and for families, it's intended to be an opportunity to ask questions and get answers outside of a court process. What was revealed during the meeting was even more shocking than what they'd heard in court, if that was at all possible. The men revealed that in their attempt to kill Sean silently, they'd tried many methods. Each of the five men had taken turns punching the young man in his heart in a misguided attempt to stop it beating. They'd also dropped a tree trunk on Sean's head to try and crush his skull. The men admitted that, as slight in stature as he was, Sean was extremely strong and continuously fought for his life. Sean's sister described seeing the men brought into the room that day in shackles, still serving their prison sentences, and she says that her expectation was that they would open with an apology to the family, but none of them did. She says that they only said they were sorry after they were asked by the facilitator if they were sorry. When the sisters are asked if they'll ever feel like they'll come to terms with what happened, they say that 23 years later, they still cry every time they talk about him. And that's probably the best answer to that question. They say that they've just learned how to live with the pain. Janine updated her Facebook post about the restorative justice process after the first four-hour session, saying that they still had unanswered questions and had asked for another session. After the second opportunity to talk face-to-face with her brother's murderers, she shared that she and her family had decided not to go any further with the process. In her words, we have come to realise that a murderer remains a murderer. The family felt that even after 23 years, the men were still lying and not sharing all the information. Maritza's mother says that if they had shot the pair as they sat in their car outside the fish shop, that would have been a far kinder death than the endless journey they'd taken them on with multiple stops, where they must have had hope that at each moment they might be released, but then to hear the men start discussing how they were going to get rid of them. This, for her, was the worst part,
because they did not need to suffer like that. She attended a parole hearing for Andrew April and said that one of the members of the parole committee had asked him what he would have done if it was his child that was killed. Andrew replied that he would have killed the perpetrators. Maritza's mom says that upon hearing that, the committee member recommended that two years be added to his sentence. Andrew did eventually get parole, though, and today he is a free man. Elizabeth's greatest fear is that, as these men are released, they may one day come to her house and ask her for forgiveness. She doesn't know if she'll be able to control herself, looking in their eyes. Maritza's uncle, the seasoned policeman, has had to undergo intensive psychotherapy since her murder. He says that, as a policeman, even though you see horrible things every day, it's possible to compartmentalise that pain and trauma until it happens to someone you love. He watched his niece grow from a tiny, petite baby into a strong, beautiful young woman. And then he watched as her body was hauled out of a ravine, her beautiful face wrapped in plastic bags and duct tape. He says that at that moment, a curtain lifted in his mind, and the trauma from his career that he'd managed to compartmentalise melded with the horror of what he was seeing in front of him, and he was completely overwhelmed. He says that now, 23 years later, he has dropped the curtain again, and behind it sits all of his career trauma, as well as Maritza's murder. He just doesn't lift the curtain anymore. Her mom says that it is faith that has kept her going, as well as the knowledge that if she allowed herself to be completely overcome by this, those five men would have claimed yet another victim. It's also clear to see that it's not just family members that still carry the memory of this horrific event on their hearts. When Janine posted in her Malmesbury Facebook group about the restorative justice appointments, the post attracted hundreds of comments, with people recalling the day the car and Sean and Maritza were found, and the court case. There was understandably a lot of venom against the murderers, but mostly people shared their memories of Sean and Maritza 23 years later. Two young people that didn't get a chance to live their lives. As for the offenders, we know for sure that Andrew April is out on parole. Ricardo Foti became available for parole on several occasions and has been consistently declined. His brother made a rather thoughtless statement, in my opinion, to the media after his brother was last declined for parole. He said that his brother should have been let out of jail a long time ago because he had already been punished for his crime, according to him. He went on to say that he didn't think that his brother would ever get out of jail because, according to him, the parole board was being influenced by the victim's families. Well, hell. I don't know why that would be the case, Ricardo's brother. 
I mean, they only have to live with the fact that your brother wrapped their loved ones' faces in plastic bags and tape after torturing and beating them and then threw them into a ravine like they were nothing more than pieces of trash. I mean, I can't imagine why their intense unending pain and the fact that your brother has shown no real remorse would affect the parole board's decision at all. Perhaps you should be thankful that your brother is alive and you can visit him whenever you want to and he's not in a grave in Malmesbury Cemetery next to the woman he loved. Donovan Klicher, who was 23 at the time of the crime and already a career criminal all over the Western Cape, has become quite the prisoner's spokesperson while in jail. In 2008, he represented other vicious killers in a bid to get the Department of Corrections to allow the prisoners the choice of which prison they were in and not to be moved around due to overcrowding. He represented members of the 27s gang, including members of the so-called Flower Gang, who committed a heinous murder in which they killed a mother and her young child. Klicker described the men as model prisoners. It is quite possible at this point that many of the perpetrators may be out on parole already, as I was only able to confirm the status of one of them. If there was ever a senseless murder committed in history, it was these two murders. There was absolutely no reason for Sean and Maritza to have died that night. All those men needed to do was get back into their vehicle and drive away, or wait for the couple to buy their fish and chips and leave. It would have taken no more than ten minutes in the quiet shop. But they just couldn't do that because in their eyes, looking through their narcissistic view, this couple had dared to intervene in their plans, and for that, they had to pay the ultimate price. I have no doubt that as Donovan Kricher approached the vehicle that night, he saw something else that set him off. He saw a young man who was everything that he was not. He saw a successful youngster who'd worked hard to afford everything he had. He saw a beautiful young woman who was with Sean because she desperately loved him and not because she was afraid of him or because of what he could give her as his relationships had likely gone. While I'm sure that the initial plan was just to hijack the couple, I'm pretty convinced that at least one of those men already knew when they pulled away from the fish shop that neither of their victims was getting out alive. The sadly ironic thing is that even though Donovan and his crew put the pair through so much and robbed them of all their physical possessions and eventually took their lives, Donovan still couldn't rob Sean of the man that he was. He still couldn't break the bond between the couple no matter how hard he tried. If Sean Latachan and Maritza van der Mava had not encountered those five horrendous criminals that night, they may not have gone on to get married and build a life together. Their young love may have fizzled out, and they may have gone their separate ways, but at least they would have had that choice. 
if those five men had decided to wait ten more minutes to rob the fish and chip shop, Maritza and Sean's families would have had entirely different lives. The community of Malmesbury would not have had a deep scar running down its middle, which although through the years has been covered in scar tissue, when you dig just a little, it's just as raw as it ever was. Sean and Maritza are the epitome of innocent victims. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong group of thugs. Whether or not the two would have remained as a couple had they lived, both had enormously bright futures ahead of them. Sean would have likely taken over his dad's business one day. Maybe Maritza would have made her dreams of being a model come true. Like their surviving siblings have, though, they would have contributed to their communities in one way or another. They would have lived and loved and grown and matured. They would have experienced the loss of their parents someday, but that would have been a far easier loss to deal with than the unnatural reversal of that order. Instead, Sean and Maritza are frozen in time, forever 19 and 21, forever so deeply in love that they could not imagine living without each other. Forever listening to music and holding hands in Sean's Ford Laser. Thank you for listening to episode 43. The Baines Kluwerf Murders. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with the Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>